You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. Today's two guests are sure making a stir in the global economy lately. I have with me Dr. Adam Back and Samson Mao here to talk about their big joint announcement they made with the country of El Salvador to issue the first sovereign bond that's backed by Bitcoin mining and a special Bitcoin coupon payment. During the show, we get into the specifics of the issuance, why it's unique, why someone might be interested in buying this security over just owning Bitcoin, among many other topics. This one sure doesn't disappoint. So without further delay, let's get to it. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right, so here I am with uh, Samson Mao, Adam Back, like we said in the intro. Guys, welcome to uh, the show. Thanks, Preston. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. So you guys were really creating a stir. Um, you know, Samson, you're down there in El Salvador, up on the stage with the president himself. Uh, talk us through the lead up to this issuance. So I know Adam was on the show, uh, you know, I don't know, a, half, a quarter ago, half a year ago, and we were talking about the Blockstream mining note and how this idea of issuing debt uh, that's backed by hashing power was, in my opinion, a revolutionary idea. And so did El Salvador come knocking on your door? Did you guys go knocking on their door? How did this play out and how did this take shape? So it's a, a long story. And I guess it starts from Jack Mallers when he started kicking things off with the uh, Bitcoin law. So he made an introduction uh, to us, to the government, and we've We've been advising on a number of topics, uh, things like cold storage, uh, wallets, Bitcoin in general. But then we also proposed to do the Bitcoin bonds. But as that was a time when it was a bit busy, they had to pass the law, the Bitcoin law, and then they had to deal with the Chivo launch. It kind of fell by the wayside. But after Chivo launch, we resumed discussions. And this has been months in the making, but we kind of nailed down all the bond specifics what we wanted to accomplish and how we wanted to do it. Uh, Bitfinex came in and you know they started also joining these discussions on the regulatory side and security side. And while I was down there in El Salvador, I met with the uh, Minister of Finance and a few other people, and we kind of pulled it all together and then decided to announce it at the uh, Field of Bit uh, event at the beach. Unreal. And I mean, it you is. guys did this fast, in my opinion, for them to roll, for them to pass the law, for them to roll out the wallet and then to roll this out just months later. I just can't imagine how much work was being done behind the scenes. Um, let's talk about the win for El Salvador. Let, let's let's go through each of the entities that would be involved in this issuance and describe why they have an incentive to participate in it. So the first person or the first entity I want to talk about is El Salvador itself. What do they, what's their capture in this? Well, they get to raise capital without any uh, external agencies like the IMF or World Bank being involved. They can actually take advantage of that technology that everyone's been talking about for the the past uh, 10 plus years, you know, blockchain technology, and they can actually do a tokenized bond offering and cut out a lot of those middlemen and intermediaries. So typically, or historically, when someone does a, a bond issuance or raise, 
there are a number of people taking cuts. So let's say you did a, a billion dollar bond, Preston, you're not going to end up with a billion dollars. You're going to be paying a lot of banks and intermediaries their cut. And you'll, you'll end up with something at the end, depending on how well you can negotiate it. The terms are largely going to be dictated by these, um, go, uh, these I don't know, global organizations that may not give you favorable terms, and they might interfere with your local politics and you know, basically infringe upon your sovereignty. But this way, it can all be done without that. And for El Salvador, in this case, they can lower their cost of capital. So historically, their, their bonds, like, they're averaging about 9, 9.5%. This would be reducing that cost of capital, right? They're paying a far lower coupon with 6.5%. Um, they're also going to get every single dollar or every single sat that people choose to invest, right? So there's no middleman taking cut. Um, Bitfinex is not taking any cut. So if you invest $100, El Salvador gets $100. And I think this is quite revolutionary, especially in bonds, because usually it's uh, people feeding all the way down the food chain. I think something else to highlight here, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, so they get all those advantages for the raise. But then at the end of the 10-year period, here they are with all this infrastructure, all this mining hardware that's hooked up to geothermal energy that they're getting for free, and they get to continue to benefit through that hardware and that infrastructure for into perpetuity or until the hardware fails and they have to go do another another round or whatever it might be. So, I mean, that's that's crazy to me that they're able to pull something like that off and and build something out if i'm if i'm correct it's 500 million dollars is how much hardware they're they're purchasing right so the the first bond the volcano bond is 500 million for infrastructure and 500 million for buying bitcoin and i think a lot of people focused on the 500 million that will buy bitcoin thinking you know bitcoin's got to go up a number of times before they can repay and or pay the coupon even but they're forgetting that El Salvador is going to have half a billion dollars of infrastructure after this. And that is directly going to build up their country. They can tap into those geothermal wells and, and build up more volcano mines. Um, if they have excess power, they can sell that power to neighboring countries. Um, they're going to be mining Bitcoin constantly throughout that 10-year period. And this is just one bond. If they do a few more bonds, they could have a, a large stockpile of Bitcoin, not from the bonds, uh, not from buying Bitcoin for the bonds, but also mining Bitcoin. So I, I think you know, there's a, a lot more at play here than people realize. Yeah, for context, the uh, the amount of conventional bonds they have outstanding at the moment is around uh, 8.2 billion plus another 1 billion loans. So, you know, depending on the Bitcoin price trajectory, um, you know, we've looked at the median of the last seven years in the modeling, which is about 35%. That would see, you know, past is no predictor of the future, but people involved with Bitcoin find that to be a reasonably conservative number. 10 years is a very long time in Bitcoin, and that would put a 10-year exit price at $1.2 million per coin. And, you know, so you could see that between Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin price appreciation, potentially above that level even, we'll have to see how it plays out. They could potentially uh, basically wipe out their sovereign debt over the course of a period like that, maybe across a few bonds, um, and you know, build all kinds of infrastructure for the country and improve the you know, infrastructure, um, per capita, you know, all of the economic 
both metrics basically for the country. Um, and that's based on the 35% median uh, growth rate of Bitcoin that you guys used in, in your forecasting. So we used all like a range. So we used 5%, 10%, all the way up to 35%, just to look at different central paths. And uh, geometric. Yeah. So uh, me personally, I think 35% sounds extremely conservative. I'm obviously a Bitcoin uh, bull here. Um, I know when I'm looking at projections for my own personal position, I'm not necessarily using the median to, to do the calculation. I'm using a compound annual growth rate. And I like to choose any four-year period because of the four-year halving cycle that's built into the protocol. Um, when I do those numbers, I get numbers and I'm not trying to... Um, I'm not trying to oversell something. I know you guys are trying to come up with conservative estimates and here I am kind of blowing them out. But I mean, these numbers are triple digit returns when you do a compound annual growth rate of Bitcoin over any four-year period you select. I don't care what it is. Pick the date and then go four years you know, to the right of, of whatever that is and do a compound annual growth rate and you're triple digits every single time, no matter what. Well, uh, I think within the five-year, at the five-year mark, which is when the, the bond lockup ends, I think Bitcoin will be a million dollars or so at that time. Yeah. So in a few quarters, they should be able to recoup the initial 500 million that was used to buy the Bitcoin mm-hmm. and then you know, start sharing that upside with, uh, with the bondholders. So talk to us about that structure. So uh, we, we talked a little bit about how El Salvador really benefits from this. You're starting to get into, if somebody's going to buy the note, and we can get into the reasons why they might buy that versus Bitcoin. But talk to this this point that you're talking about right now that's part of the terms of, of owning it, which is once they get their $500 million back, they then start providing a special coupon. Is that how you would, you, you would term it? Yeah. So I think after the five-year period, after the five-year lockup is done, um, Bitcoin should be at a much higher level than it was when they first bought the Bitcoin. We modeled it out at 60K. So, you know, if it's a million dollars at the five-year mark, that's great. Uh, but it should be, you know, some, it should be higher than 60K after five years, unless something's wrong with Bitcoin. But um, at that point, they will start selling off. So the goal is that they would first sell off enough to recoup their 500 million. And once they've got that first 500 million down, down they will start to share uh, the Bitcoin upside with the bondholders in what's called the Bitcoin dividend. So basically they'll sell off every quarter a certain amount of coins. And then you as a bondholder would get you know, half of those coins. So in, in more detail, basically they are doing the reverse of dollar cost average buying, which they're doing dollar cost average selling. So at the five-year mark, there are 20 quarters left until the 10-year mark. And so every quarter they're going to sell one twentieth of the Bitcoin. Now they may keep their half of it because you know they don't have to pay that out. That's that's the country's uh, Bitcoin. And once they've recouped the 500 million, as Samson was saying, you know, however many quarters that takes, then they start paying half of that to the bondholder. But the uh, Bitcoin bonus dividend is paid out annually in Jan- in the following January. So there was like as as many as five. Uh, Bitcoin bonus dividends, yep. but cal- calculate quarterly, paid annually. So you get uh, the six point five percent coupon throughout the whole ten year period, but for the final five years, you get an added Bitcoin dividend. And if you model, if you follow the thirty five year over year model, then 
I think you get 90%. So it'd be 90 plus 6.5 in that 10th year. And then if you go with the higher one, then you know, 40%, then I think it's like 140% plus 6.5 in that 10th year. So the 10th year will be very nice for all the holders of the bond that actually held for 10 years. Yeah, so- and, and of course it will average out, right? Because, you know, looking at Bitcoin's price history, some years are good, some years are bad. So, you know, maybe your bonus, your your dividend will be higher in year eight, lower in year nine, higher in year 10 and so forth. We'll, we'd have to see how it works. Now, uh, Samson, I heard an interview where you were on Bloomberg and the very first question, which I think is a really good question, was, well, why not just own, why does a person not just go out and buy Bitcoin? Why would they want to buy this when they're getting half as much Bitcoin in it? And I, I know the answer, but I want you to explain this answer to our audience, why why somebody would own this. Right. So the bond is going to be different things to different people. Um, to a Bitcoin hodler, maybe they don't want to buy it. Maybe they just want to hodl Bitcoin forever. And that's okay. But maybe you're a Bitcoin hodler and you want to get permanent, permanent residence in El Salvador and work your way towards citizenship. Well, you can look at the bond as a 25 plus percent discount off of that permanent residence, right? Otherwise you would need to sell your Bitcoin for dollars like effectively to get uh, the PR. But with the bond, it's simpler, more straightforward. You kind of roll up the uh, PR with a investment vehicle. Um, If you're an institution, then maybe you cannot buy Bitcoin. That's a bottleneck for a lot of big players in this space. They simply cannot due to their charters or mandates by Bitcoin. And that's why everyone's clamoring for a Bitcoin ETF, specifically a spot ETF, because they can buy that. But those people could buy the bond. And then you have the traditional investors in the bond markets that will just look at this purely from a a bond standpoint and say, okay, the yield on this thing is great. And they would just buy that because they're just comparing, you know, this bond to another bond, maybe a US Treasury note for 1.5%. And this looks incredibly attractive. but there's this, a number of reasons why people would buy it, and it largely depends on how they view this instrument. But it can be viewed from a number of different angles. You can even look at this as a, a central bank digital currency in a way, right? It'll be a crypto token that is going to be issued by a central bank, and it has Bitcoin backing. So it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a CBDC bitten by a radioactive spider. You could look at it also in that light. Yeah, I was going to say that another type of buyer, you, you do see people, individuals who are interested in, you know, read about Bitcoin, philosophically interested to get some exposure, but they're conservative and they see, you know, big macro volatility year to year and they feel they can't handle that, you know, and that, that's an alternative where other people do it the other way around. They buy and then they, you know, they sell, they panic sell in a, in a big drop and they lose money. And maybe they come back later. So effectively, this is this bond acts a bit like a, um, a cap- capital protected structured product. So if people are not familiar with those things, they are typically a kind of three-year term product. This is obviously much longer. And you put dollars or you know fiat currency into it, you get some kind of defined economic outcome. You know, if this stock index exceeds this level by this date, you get you know, this insurance premium, maybe some fairly high interest rate. And if it doesn't, you, you know, you just get your money back. So the, the punchline is you get this potential upside, or if that doesn't work out, you get your money back. So it's a kind of money back, I wouldn't say guarantee, because, you know, there are, there are typically 
And the, and the way these things are typically constructed is they'll set aside, you know, maybe 85, 90% of the capital, buy zero coupon bonds with it to rebuild to the 100%, and then they'll do something highly leveraged with the 10 or 15% left to get you your defined outcome. So this is not constructed in that way, but it has a similar property, which is, you know, other than the default risk, which arguably the Bitcoin component improves, you put money into it, you should get the money out at maturity plus a 6.5% coupon and some Bitcoin upside, right? So, you know, I've seen in, in the Twitter comments and there are lots of interesting questions, people saying, well, why wouldn't you just buy Bitcoin? Well, the answer is you get a kind of, you know, money back assurance, modular default risk, plus a coupon, plus some Bitcoin upside. And so if you are a potential Bitcoin buyer, or, you know, if you have friends who would be potential Bitcoin buyers, but don't like the volatility, this is a way to get some upside and a pretty attractive interest rate. And arguably the Bitcoin part reduces the default risk on the bond. Yeah. And, and the default risk on some, you know, lower credit rating sovereigns is, you know, implied to be pretty high. You can imply that by the, you know, the uh, implied interest rate from the current bond price. So yeah. An another something. buyer is actually maybe the same profile that we have for the BMN. So we discussed the BMN on your show before, Preston, but that's the Blockstream mining note. So you're effectively buying hash rate. It's a securitized hash rate. But we also have large whales that are overweight in, in Bitcoin, and they want to de-risk a little bit of their portfolio, uh, but still have that Bitcoin exposure. So one way they do that is to buy the BMN, and then they can get back their, their Bitcoin effectively at the end of the three-year BMN term. But this could also work in a similar way. If you're a Bitcoin whale and you have you know thousands of coins, you can de-risk a little bit by buying this bond and you can still have that Bitcoin appreciation or special dividend at the, at the, after the five-year mark. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? 
How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. When I think about the, the Pareto principle on your, the people that are going to be buying this, I think the majority of your buyers are the same people that are buying MicroStrategy uh, convertible debt, knowing full and well that Michael Saylor was going to go buy Bitcoin with the the funding that he raised, and he just evidently went out and bought another seven thousand Bitcoin with another round that he that he just raised. I don't think he's still doing the convertible debt deals uh, that that convert into common stock like he was before, uh, for obvious reasons. But I see this as being a very similar audience where you've got somebody who's chartered with a fixed income charter, and they're saying that was literally the best bond issue last year, uh, the best performing bond issue on the entire global market based on performance, right? Because of the convertibility uh, piece to it. Um, And I kind of, you know, I suspect... And I'm very biased as to what I think Bitcoin's going to do. But I suspect that you guys might have something very similar on your hands here that as time marches on and you're five years down the road, people are going to look back at this issuance and you guys are issuing it at a yield, the coupon on it 6.5%. I think you're going to have such a massive premium to own these things to, for the rest of the, the mature, for the, the next five years, that the price is going to give you an effective yield of 1% on these on these uh, bonds. Um, time's going to obviously tell, but um, the people going back to my original point, which was the the audience who, who is going to be buying these things is going to be people that are chartered, have a fixed income charter and that's all they can buy, but they want access to Bitcoin, just like Michael Saylor's buyers wanted access to Bitcoin in some indirect kind of way. Do you guys agree well, with this? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of things here. One is this is a new type of vehicle for accessing Bitcoin. Aside from owning physical Bitcoin, the options have been public companies with Bitcoin on a balance sheet, MicroStrategy being the most famous and a concentrated version of that, I guess. Um, another type being public mining stocks that are prop mining or hosting variants of that. And now this bond, um, which, which also, you know, packages in this different format, as you said, as a, as a bond. Um, 
And I think the other interesting thing is it's a different audience. So funds that buy stocks are potentially a different audience to funds that buy bonds. And you know, the bond market itself is very large. It's you know, over $100 trillion. So you know, if even 1% of that audience decides that they would, would like some higher interest or to have some Bitcoin upside, that's potentially you know, market impactful move. Um, There's also the so, uh, the segment which is ideological, right? Bitcoiners that want to support El Salvador. Well, a lot of people want to do it, but there's no easy way to do it, right? Like, how do you do that? This is a very simple vehicle. Just buy the bond, and you're directly supporting the development and you know, infrastructure build out of El Salvador from the ground up. And I think that's a really attractive proposition. It's just making it so simple to do. Um, I think we're at about 100 plus million in commitments just from the, uh, the Bitcoin and you know, cryptocurrency crowd here. And we haven't even released the, the formal spec or formal prospectus of the bond yet. But there's a lot of money that will come in just for ideological reasons. Um, but if, going back to your earlier point, like there is a lot of money. People that are buying mining stocks as a proxy for Bitcoin exposure, buying MicroStrategy, um, companies that have Bitcoin on the balance sheet, both private and publicly uh, disclosed, you know, that's like 85 billion-ish right there. And I think there's just a massive influx of capital waiting to come in that has no good vehicle to enter into this market. But um, yeah. you, one thing that you talk about, Preston, a lot is, you know, people... Bitcoiners should be looking at the bond market. It's a hundred trillion, maybe two hundred trillion dollar market. Amen. And <laughs> you know, I don't think like a lot, there's a lot of Bitcoiners that are focused on hodling, but it's important to step back and look at the bigger picture. One of the things that we've tried to do at Blockstream is imagine building the future of finance on top of Bitcoin, and doing that is like hitting securities, like tokenized securities, like uh, the BMN, like EXO, and the bond market. That's just ripe for disruption. And I think this is that first step to tackle. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think part of what makes it an interesting moment in history to approach the bond market is the yield situation. So basically, most of the bonds in existence are paying implied yields below inflation and in many cases, actually literally negative interest. So people have a pressure to seek yield anyway, any way they can, and we'll start to look at you know, slightly more adventurous things. And so this is you know, a potential avenue for the appetite, and it's likely repeatable for you know, El Salvador itself. And of course, there are many countries that issue these kinds of bonds as well. And you know, this one, the, the issuer is El Salvador, the government. Blockstream is uh, just a technology provider and advisor. And Bitfinex is the bookmaker, but you know, there's no reason that other, um, you know, more conventional bookmakers or underwriters couldn't participate in in similar things and expand it. Um, because you know, I think, as Samson said, the the uh, Bitcoin you know, user base has in the past raised you know order of a billion dollars to buy effectively a Bitfinex bond in the space of ten days, right? So. I think this is easily achievable, but you know, potentially the more interesting aspect is to, you know, slightly orange pill the uh, yield-starved bond market, which is, you know, a hundred times Bitcoin's market cap, right? 
Yield starve might yeah, yield starve might be the understatement of the year, Adam. Um <laughs> you know, I I've been running around saying uh there's not a single bond on the planet that's that has a positive yield in, in real terms. Well, this one has a positive yield by twenty five basis points. You guys are the only ones that, that I know of <laughs> that's coming out right now that's that does have a slight real yield, but when you're accounting for the special coupon uh that, that's associated with this, boy oh boy. You're going to get some people's attention. Um, so, uh, Samson, you had briefly mentioned about the citizenship piece to this, which I find really interesting. Talk to us about how that would work or how you think it would work once it finally is issued. Right. I, I saw a lot of people asking on Twitter, too. So I think there was a slide up on screen that was an old slide when I was on stage with El Presidente. But uh, it, it actually is not citizenship, it's permanent residence, and then you can work towards the citizenship. Okay. But we, one of the key things with our bond proposal is we wanted to tie the two together. Um, you, know, you can buy, I don't know, a condo in Bitcoin City, and you could work towards PR that way. But I think the bond offering is a, a simpler vehicle for a lot of people. You, know, you don't have to deal with any paperwork of buying a physical property, you could just invest. And I think at the time when they announced the uh, the PR citizenship path through investment, they put it at three BTC. Uh, but uh, I think the numbers have been fluctuating based on Bitcoin price. But uh, so far, to my knowledge, it is still denominated in Bitcoin. And I think we could do with some clarity on that front. I, I don't really know exactly what the, the final arrangement is, but I do know that the goal is to tie the two things. So bond investment, and then PR working towards that citizenship. And I think it's a, a very attractive thing for people in the current uh, world climate. You know, People are looking for better places to go where they'll be treated better. So not only from the citizen's uh, standpoint, the individual standpoint, let's talk about the company standpoint. So Blockstream, not based in El Salvador. I don't know of any uh, Bitcoin company that's based in El Salvador, but I would imagine there's a massive incentive brewing for companies to consider relocation or to stand up and then, you know, make it an operational subsidiary of the, of the business. Uh, maybe you sweep funds lower or whatever, right? Um, what are you guys hearing on that front? How are you guys thinking about that? I mean, you guys are a billion dollar company, uh, how do you guys think about this? Adam, you want to take it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we're a pre-existing company and, you know, we have looked at what it would take to relocate a company. I think the challenge is that can create a tax event for existing shareholders, depending on their jurisdiction. Um, but certainly for oper- like uh, client funds operating companies, like exchanges, particularly uh, hedge funds, and, and we have a number of offshore uh, subsidiaries for various purposes, like the Blockstream Finance um, division has some uh, incorporations, and you know those types of funds are often offshore anyway. So they are looking for you know a, a jurisdiction with respected financial regulations, some clarity that they can operate that kind of business. Of course, it's all global, so you have to fit in with. Uh, where the clients are as well. But, you know, a lot of crypto exchanges are incorporated in BPI, Caymans, um, Hong Kong, Singapore. It's, it's, it's very global. So, 
you know, and I think there is an interest at the moment to bridge, you know, to bring the blockchain world into the securities and equities world. And so, you know, hence the security token initiative. So we've been pretty early in that with the blockstream mining node, blockstream amp. And so there are a number of exchanges at the moment working on um, security token framework so that they can sell securities. So, you know, there's the Bitfinex announcement a while ago about them preparing to list the blockstream mining node. And so that, that requires regulatory work. So you can imagine that a number of exchanges might be interested in a forward thinking friendly jurisdiction as a, a shoe in for you know, BVI or some of the other uh, uh, jurisdictions on the table at the moment. Have you- so in El Salvador right now, um, there I know that Bitrefill has set up an office there and an entity. I think uh, Paxful has also set up down there, and then Galloy, the organizer of the Adopting Bitcoin conference. So, Bitcoin companies are already moving to El Salvador, but um, that just brings me to another topic that we should touch on, which is the the part of the announcement which I think a lot of people missed was the securities law that we mentioned that Bifinex is working on with the government of El Salvador and us advising. But that is actually a very big game changer. So to do the bond offering, they're going to pass this new securities law. And this would allow them to issue the license to do that bond issuance to Bitfinex. The Bitfinex will be the first one. But that actually is a, a very big step creating modern digital securities laws that will be attractive to people, not overbearing and not outdated, that could potentially bring a lot more business to El Salvador. Um, I talked to another crypto exchange yesterday and they're interested in, in being regulated out of El Salvador. And I think this opens a door to nation state competition, not just for Bitcoin, but to Bitcoin companies where they can provide this attractive regulatory framework and provide the right business conditions. If you look at Bitcoin City, you know it's 0% uh, tax, 0% uh, property tax, 0% payroll tax, blah, 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 cap gains tax, zero. You know These are very favorable conditions for doing business. And I think we kind of lost that element in the world, but this could kick off you know, uh, a war for business. And that is good for business because you're, you're going to get countries that are going to try to open the doors and be conductive. Um, but potentially this could trigger, if El Salvador is the first one, that will give them a big advantage and it could trigger them becoming the new financial center of the world, much like so, Singapore managed to do that in the past. So let me dig into this more. So I think this is a really big deal, what you're talking about here with the securities law, because right now the plan is for you guys to go to Stalker. Is that correct? In order to conduct this issuance of the tokens, the, of these bond tokens that are going to then go on the liquid network. And if... El Salvador had a securities law in place. You could just go on the Bitfinex, create the token there, and you're pretty much in compliance with the with the creation of of the uh, the bond tokens. Is that correct? Yeah. So Stoker is the kind of the, the the party we're using to handle a lot of the legalities out of Luxembourg because it is a Luxembourg securitization vehicle. Um, the cool thing about Luxembourg is the chain, like the liquid chain is actually the, the record of transfer, which yes. is not the same everywhere else. That's a unique thing of Luxembourg. But uh, in El Salvador, you know, the issuer is El Salvador. And if Bitfinex is licensed to be a securities exchange there, 
then it's a very straightforward process. There's no need for any intermediary. So now if I'm on the Bitfinex uh, exchange and I'm anywhere in the world that supports that Bitfinex is is conducting business, I can now buy those those tokens, which were issued out of El Salvador, but with no friction because it's being listed on the exchange, just like any other crypto token for the most part. But it's yeah. an actual security that's gone through security law out of El Salvador. Correct. And it could be accessible. Like right now, Bitfinex does not serve the U.S. market. Um, but a U.S. broker dealer could potentially offer it if they can. If they can get the tokens from Bitfinex, then they could yeah. sell to their user base in the U.S. Yes. So this is what's different about you guys. You guys actually follow the laws. <laughs> yeah, we try. <laughs> Compared to a lot of other t- different "quote unquote" projects that are out there, um, and I mean, it's it, uh, another person who's listening to this is going to make the argument. Well, there's not clarity. There's no. There's nothing saying we can't do these things right now. Um, until you may, maybe the SEC comes out and starts regulating things and, and puts out much clearer guidance, uh, and I, and you know what I can I can buy that and agree with that. I just don't think that some folks that are maybe uh, do I call it investing in some of these other projects um, have an appreciation for how quickly or how swiftly something like that might might come down the pipe. Uh, so that leads me to my next question. What do you guys think is coming down the pipe from a regulatory standpoint here, specifically in the United States, from what you're hearing? Adam? Um, so I think the current regulations are not as, not that clear. Um, and, you know, so for example, the uh, lack of a spot Bitcoin ETF seems pretty anachronistic. Yeah, there, are, there are all kinds of arguments presented, but basically the uh, futures ETFs, which they have allowed, are relying on the very same price feeds that they're arguing you know, for, for the surveillance and the quality of the venues and so forth um, as to not have a spot price. So the, uh, there's a US senator that wrote a letter to the SEC basically saying, uh, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Would you care to elaborate? So, you know, there's there's some anachronisms still, a lot of uh, inclarity about what exactly is considered to be a security. You know, I think that people have been pretty clear that Bitcoin is not security because it, it was decentralized from the start. There was no kind of how we test like aspect to it whatsoever, but I'm not sure. Like, it seems like the rest of it is a bit of an open question. So I think it's creating a lot of employment for, uh, you know, legal advisors to uh, various past current, you know, sort of ICO related or pre-mined coins and things like that with management teams and CEOs and selling internationally. So I don't know, you know, we'll see, we'll see how that plays out, but um, that's, that's one area. See, you see a bit of uh, discussion about stablecoin size, basically, mm-hmm. I think is the main concern. Yeah, but, but yeah. The, you know, the, I'm talking about the uh, fiat-backed stablecoins, not the algo stablecoins, mm-hmm. which I think are probably more risky. Um, so the fiat-backed ones are typically placing 
the raised funds in money markets or commercial paper and bank deposits and things like that. But in aggregate, it's over $100 billion. So, you know, the regulators in the US are starting to realize, well, that's quite a significant proportion of those markets. If there was a sudden withdrawal of too many billion dollars on one day, that could actually impact liquidity in those markets and flow through to other uses of those markets. So, you know, that that concern is just a kind of stability argument. And so they have, I, I see they have been talking about, you know, whether stable coins should be subject to some more bank-like, I guess, requirements on sort of stability assurances and, you know, all of the things that go into a bank being able to meet its demands and also benefit from the central bank implicit underwriting if, if they fail, right? Which a stablecoin doesn't have. So, of course, a bank has a completely different set of risks, which is they are explicitly fractional to a massive degree. Where, you know, I think the stablecoins are, you know, all, all the funds are there in money markets and things like that. So, there's no direct fractionality, basically, um, but they have a liquidity. You know, a potential for for sort of a duration mismatch, right? Because they'll have very short-term things, longer-term things, and banks struggle with that kind of thing all the time as well. And they'll have, you know, short-term lending to bridge it. And I'm sure the stablecoin guys are, you know, they're professional at managing a pretty sophisticated operation there. You don't manage, you know, $60, $70 billion worth of assets without knowing what you're doing, basically. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. 
The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Samson, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more to the securities law uh, piece and from the context of let, let's fast forward three years into the future, how what would be the impact if a Bitfinex or any others start setting up shop inside of El Salvador? You talked a little bit about the competition that would take place, but uh, describe to us like the world as you would see it in two to four years from now if the securities law does get passed through in El Salvador, and and now you have this this easily copy paste. Uh, template in place for all the other nation states that have uh, energy, geothermal energy, whatever it might be, natural sources in in their country. They, uh, it's a similar setup as El Salvador, I guess, is what I'm I'm getting at. Yeah. So the great thing about you know having this new modern securities law is that it should, in theory, kick off competition for you know clients, you know crypto exchanges or Bitcoin businesses and the like. Um, so it kind of reduces the impact or it might influence in a positive light the regulations in the US, right? Because now you've got, you've got to compete for business. So I could see if done right, this drawing all the major exchanges to El Salvador. You know, you, you look at historically, where are all the big bank headquarters? They're usually in capitals of big financial centers. You know, you have the HSBC buildings and the the JP Morgan buildings and whatnot, you could have, you know, all these different exchange towers and headquarters in El Salvador, in San Salvador, right? You'd have, uh, you know, the Bitfinex tower, the uh, BitMEX tower, the OK Coin tower, et cetera, et cetera, right? Or Binance tower, right? But this could be the, the big thing. This could be the, the last domino that puts that into place, just having this competition for better regulations. Um, and even within the U.S., it, it's even fragmented because with uh, with the the bit license, right? Kraken and a number of businesses just vacated New York because they can't do business there. But I think if you if you have a country willing to do business, business will come. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting analogy to make for the you know 
the adoption of uh, oil, petrol, diesel in uh, fossil fuels, and sort of discovery that you could make combustion engines and that could be, you know, tricked, started, kicked off the industrial revolution, basically. So countries that were previously resource poor suddenly realized they were literally sitting on an oil well and that was, you know, black gold, right? So this is a potentially a new shift, which is if you have, you know, very efficient power sources, like a lot of solar power, geothermal from volcanoes, um, you can do sovereign Bitcoin mining, which is uh, you know, what El Salvador is already doing and, and you know, plans to do more of. So, and then if you look at, you know, another oil related example, the uh, Emirate in the UAE of Dubai ran out of oil, you know, they, they fully tapped out their oil in that, in that area of the country, I think in the sixties or seventies and, you know, trying to decide what to do about that because that was their source of prosperity. They embarked on a massive civil engineering initiative to build a modern, you know, the modern city of Dubai, which is a you know, pretty impressive uh, collection of civil, civil engineering, artificial islands, skyscrapers, all kinds of very glitzy modern stuff. And so, you know, that, that was funded in a, in a particular way, but I think the, the Bitcoin city has the potential to do something like that, which is, which is a kind of, you know, if you, if you build things in a modern forward looking way, you can attract massive amounts of outside inbound investment, which is, which is what happened with Dubai. And, you know, Dubai is also a very low tax jurisdiction, but they had a formula for ensuring the government got some stake in the upside because it was a government, you know, partly government owned Dubai Investment Corporation that's doing the construction. So if you, if you build, you know, the infrastructure for a new city, the government owns what was previously almost worthless land into, you know, a multi-billion dollar um, real estate holding company that's sovereign owned, right? And then you can sell that or co-develop it with industry and bring inbound investment and create a nice, you know, improve the living standard in the country, bring outside investment, bring more business locally. And I think the other thing that's kind of coincidentally helping at the moment is more and more people are going remote. You know, people are working remotely anyway. That enables more people to, you know, work from an Airbnb in another country. Location becomes blurred. The prospect of, you know, upping sticks from, you know, San Francisco, Chicago, wherever wherever people are at the moment, and you know, half of the company moving to Bitcoin City, El Salvador, maybe that's not just a big deal anymore uh, if if the tax incentives are right and so forth. Yeah, your choice is really uh, stay in the U.S. and get tax on your unrealized gains, or go to El Salvador. Not yet. Not and... yet. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Right. Not yet. But it's coming. Oh boy, is that scary? Um, hey, so in the announcement, uh, there was this idea of this Bitcoin city that was brought up. Uh, you hit on it a little bit earlier. Did this kind of uh, because I think people saw the announcement and they thought that it was going to be funded through the through this mining note or the, the mining bond that was that you guys are working on. These are two separate things, correct? And kind of talk to us about uh, what the Bitcoin City was all about with the announcement. Yeah, so Bitcoin City is a, a new city built on the east side of El Salvador, and it'll have its own airport, you know, commercial, residential. It'll be built next to the 
Conchagua volcano and you know, powered by geothermal. And it's basically a brand new city from the ground up. And it's going to be, like we talked about earlier, zero tax on basically everything, just a, a VAT tax. And I think, like Adam is saying, this could become something like Dubai, like a new mega city in metropolis. But um, it's a, going to be an interesting draw, I think, like for Bitcoiners and companies just to go and set up there. It's just a very attractive proposition. And uh, with the Bitcoin as legal tender and everything, that I think it's just uh, opening the doors for commerce, right? Like the success of the Asian tigers is really they were open to commerce. Um, they're open to business. They're open to capital influx. Uh, whereas in Hong Kong these days, you see it starting to close off. It's harder and harder to even get a bank account in Hong Kong if you're a new company just setting up just because of, of all the regulation and uh, increased compliance and monitoring of transactions. So I think the key here is that El Salvador is embracing Bitcoin. They're embracing sound money and they appreciate that you need money and you need talent to have prosperity. It's difficult to squeeze blood out of a stone, right? Like in the US, you're trying to tax unrealized capital gains. You're trying to squeeze that blood from the stone. I don't think it's sustainable or practical, but they want smart people to go and move to Bitcoin City, get PR there and work towards citizenship, invest, build, make money and be prosperous. And I think for some reason that that whole mentality is lost to a lot of the world. And I hope that it does successfully take off. What time frame are they thinking for this? Um, I think it's a long-term plan. It is meant to be a big city. It's not like a little beach resort or town, right? So I would say, you know, it's like a five to 10 year project, but things do happen very quickly in El Salvador, as we saw with the Bitcoin law, uh, with their recent development projects, they're able to move things and get them going very fast. Um, and uh, I think... The first, okay, actually, let's go back to your first question. The first bond that we announced, the EBB1, El Salvador Bitcoin Bond 1, was earmarked for infrastructure, energy. So potentially it could be building that geothermal plant on the, on the Conchagua volcano. But the next bonds, and there will be more bonds, we kind of hinted at that in the announcement, would be to fund Bitcoin City. So EBB2 to 10 potentially could be to fund that development of that city. So, so they have, um, I saw in the announcement, uh, estimated the civil engineering to cost 17 billion. So how many bonds they actually have to issue to achieve that depends on the Bitcoin price trajectory, right? So, and as it's a long-term project, you know, the, the capital requirements are spaced out over time. So, but that seems, you know, a plausible approach. I would suspect that a fixed a U.S. based fixed income uh, chartered uh, fund would have a difficult time purchasing this issuance. Uh, I, th- I think that the you know because the issuer is a sovereign, it's it's a little different, right? You, usually, the issuer is a, a company, you know, like in the case mm. of the BMN one that was Blockstream, mm-hmm. and so then there are securities rules around that. But a sovereign is you know. It, it can approximately write the rules. So it's just down to the ability of you know, qualifying investors, institutions globally to buy them. So other than the you know, tokenization provider around it, it's ultimately a, a bond. You know? you know, this kind of bond is typically issued internationally in a similar way. So you know, there will be an underwriting bank. There will uh, 
you know, buy it and resell it for their margin or guarantee some aspects about the sale and take a cut for doing that. Um, and, you know, it's international. So I, th- I think so long as that form factor is adhered to, that it would be, you know, viable. But that is really, a, you know, a specialist question. So, you know, people would have to... Yeah. So you're thinking it's more the fund, the size of the fund, the access that they have to other markets and just how well they're. um, Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the hundred trillion plus of this kind of instrument in the market, I I have to think is mostly held by big funds, right? And internationally, I think it's a global market. You know, the, the issuers are different sovereigns, large companies and so forth. And the buyers are also international sovereign wealth firms, pension firms, et cetera. So I think it's already pretty global. So, and I, I, you know, I'm sure that us funds buy, you know, funds from all, you know, bonds from all over the place. It's really for them to figure out if they can buy it. Yeah. Like you saw when I was on Bloomberg, the host yeah. was adamant that you can't buy these bonds. There's Bitcoin <laughs> in it. Right. But these are just normal bonds. There's yeah. a little bit of a Trojan horse element, but they are normal bonds. And it's really up to the investors to determine if they can buy it or not. If they can't, then you know it's their loss. But if they really want to buy an interesting product with a very high yield, they will figure out a way. The thing that that I find fascinating about this is just the liquidity of it. So this is these are being issued on the liquid protocol, and for all intents and purposes, if if some if an owner wants to sell their token with another counterparty and they want to do it at 2 a.m. on a Saturday night, they can do it. Right? Yeah. This is different than pretty much every fixed income instrument on the planet, correct? That's the plan. That's the plan from day one <laughs> to bring liquidity to bond markets. Like traditionally, it bonds are not that liquid. You know, they're they're trading on traditional exchanges. Uh, I think El Salvador has one that's traded on Luxembourg Stock Exchange, but much like any other traditional exchange, you're limited to no trading on bank holidays, no weekends, you know, it's a fixed amount of hours a day. But if you look at Bitcoin, you know, in the US, I think we've accumulated accumulated 50 years of trading history. If you look at Taiwan, Bitcoin's accumulated 80 years of trading history just because it's 24-7-365, right? So these things are a major game changer in another way that I don't think people have understood yet. First of all, it's on the liquid network. If you're whitelisted and you've gone through the process to be whitelisted and can trade it, much like the BMN, you could trade it OTC. We have people trading the BMN in a Telegram channel and it's just people buying and selling all day long. It's the same thing. Nobody will be able to stop the trading of these, even if it's you know listed on Bitfinex and they have downtime, or if it's listed on another crypto exchange and there's downtime, people can still trade this outside of that system. It's just unstoppable. How, um, how does the registration for something like that work? They, they have to know who holds the token, correct? So if I'm going to sell it to somebody, you have to register on to complete the, uh, the transaction. How does that work? So the, the way Blockstream AMP works is it's uh, a multi-signature under the hood. And so as a user experience, basically you uh, set up a what looks like a Bitcoin wallet and it, it has a liquid wallet option in it. And then you sign up for Stocker, which is like signing up for a bank account or an exchange account or what have you. They're going to ask you for various KYC. If that checks out and you're in the jur- jurisdiction they support, then you basically sort of uh, connect it with your wallet 
And now the wallet knows that you're whitelisted, but the wallet and Blockstream's kind of infrastructure behind the wallet doesn't know your identity. That's retained by Stocker. So Stocker is, you know, managing the share registration agent and the KYC. And whenever, and, and then after that, you can transfer peer to peer. So you could, you know, deposit from your wallet into an exchange, withdraw from an exchange into your wallet, transfer, gift, sell, lend, whatever you want peer to peer, right? Because, and, and the wallet will only allow you to transfer if both, you know, if the recipient is set up, basically. So that's the experience. Yeah. So but there, there will be a massive pool of liquidity for this because don't forget, it is a bond but it's also a, a crypto token on the liquid network, right? So you're going to be trading on exchanges 24 seven. You're going to be able to trade OTC, um, but there's a additional demand too. Like people right now, when they're trading Bitcoin, they often sit in stable coins. Well, instead of sitting in a stable, you could sit in a bond, right? Or you could just buy the bond and use that as trading collateral to do margin trading. But there's a whole world that is opened up to you know, people that hold bonds now, just because it has these new unique properties as a crypto token. It immediately clears and it's 24 seven all yes. days of the year. And I think that that's the, that's the really big breakthrough for securities that is coming in, in, and for you guys is already there. Um, and I think this is where you get into maybe a cultural fight on Twitter. And we see it all the time where Part of the community thinks that nothing should be registered and that it's nobody's business whether I want to own part of this company and, uh, you know, buzz off and I should be able to trade it to whoever I want, whenever I want in whatever jurisdiction. And, you know, I'm not going to say that that's wrong, right? Like I, that's a, that's a, that's a best case scenario as far as I'm concerned, if we could ever get to that. I'm just suspect as to whether we can get to that, at least in the short term, right? In the next five to 10 years, I think the regulators are coming and I think they're coming in. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we just roll over, right? I think we need to to like really kind of go to battle with what the end state would be, which is this world where people can just exchange all these things. But when I look at the direction Blockstream's going, I think you guys are going in the direction where you're expecting the regulators you're doing things according to securities law. You're viewing these as securities, which they are. Um, and you're just moving out in that direction. And it's it's different than the approach of, of a lot of others that are treating it just like the wild, wild west. And they're like, hey, screw you. We're going to do whatever we want. And we don't care what the laws say. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, historically, there's been a bit of a, uh, you know, the, the attempts of projects that have, uh, try to say that they're not securities or that they reject and don't care about securities law. The side effect has typically been a highly defective investment contract that plus or minus says you're making a donation. And, you know, even if the project succeeds, you're not, you know, due for any share of the upside, you have no equity interest, etc. So um, while the philosophical um, point is, you know, is, is something that's attractive that, the world should be a freer place. The result of trying to avoid uh, the security regulations means that the user gets an extremely bad deal and there's very little investment oversight. So most such projects have been extremely poor investments or not produced the products, basically. You know, the success rate's been terrible. So 
in principle, it could work. You know, somebody could uh, do the right thing despite there being no useful contract, but empirically that hasn't really worked out. So I don't know, that's kind of an unfortunate um, statistic. You know, one would hope for better, but that is what it is. So in any case, I think the, that you know, Bitcoin is the is interesting bearer asset and that, that really you know, isn't a security, it's a digital commodity. And um, just uh, pragmatically, you can get you know, a lot of very interesting innovation while adhering to current regulations, which are you know, ultimately about consumer protection, even though they're imperfect. And so you know, as an example, the fact that you can peer-to-peer transfer some various kinds of security and bonds any time of day in various increments is interesting. And then you can use smart contracts on top of it. So for example, there's a, a wallet on uh, Liquid. It's, a, it's not another company it's called Siteswap. And they have, um, you know, and with that, you can do a trustless swap. So in a kind of atomic swap. So you could swap you know, a Bitcoin or some tether for a BMN or 100th part of a BMN. And potentially these uh, EBB bonds in in the short fu- short term future, and you know they can, they can basically provide you with an an order book even, which is it's not technically an order book because there's no custody involved. It's just a kind of bulletin board meeting point, but all with trustless technology and actually with confidentiality. So looking at the chain, um, you can't see what the price was, how much was sold. And there's no uh, technical topic. There's none of this kind of minor extracted value issue because the miner has no clue what happened. Basically, it's some kind of confidential trade happened. I think there's an ideal that people would like, but you, know, you have to take some steps to get to that ideal. It doesn't happen overnight and instantly. I completely agree with you on that. Um, so we, were, we had some uh, Twitter, I don't know what I would call this, a spat or a discussion, a contentious discussion <laughs> with some of the folks over at Stacks. And um, and so just as, as we look at the comparison of what you guys are doing at Liquid, it's a federated model. You guys are not suggesting that it's decentralized like Bitcoin in any kind of way. There's, there's a form of centralization to that, just like any other protocol that's layer one that's, that's trying to do this. And so their solution involves uh, an altcoin that is part of the protocol that had a pre-mine, obviously, and uh, but it's not a federated uh, model. When you're comparing these two, what would you say to somebody who's listening to this, who who's looking at the Stacks model and saying, well, it's being built, and, and I think they're big phrases, it's being built on top of Bitcoin and using the hash rate of Bitcoin. And I know uh, Adam's pushed back on that pretty heavily. And I'm curious to hear your opinions why, but when you're comparing those two, they're pretty much implying that they're more open, but it requires a token. And you guys are saying we're um, not as open, but we don't require uh, an altcoin to be an intermediary between you guys doing these smart contracts with the issuance of like a, a, a mining bond or note on top of it with your own token. Right. I mean, I think that's been, you know, I think altcoins have gone through an evolution over time and there is, um, you know, a market to speculate on them. Um, 
I, I, I wouldn't invest in them, you know, I wouldn't buy them personally because I'm a value investor. So, and, but other people will kind of speculate on things basically. And so I think, you know, everything that came out of that is just basically iterations on that theme, which is, you know, the kind of evolutionary forces making them present ever more complicated stories. Originally, it was just an icon and a copy of Bitcoin with some parameters and, you know, it evolved into more and more elaborate stories. And there have been a few which have tried to claim various connections to Bitcoin, you know, that they're better than Bitcoin or they're like Bitcoin or they're connected to Bitcoin. So, you know, I, th I think it's just more of the same, basically. And, um, you know, ult ultimately everything about it is an altcoin. You know, there are, there are plenty of altcoins that check some, their blocks in Bitcoin. Uh, I lost track, you know, probably a dozen or something. So, you know, I don't think it's any different really. Um, is, is there anything that yeah. they can do from a, pro, uh, from a smart contract piece on, and I'm just using stacks as an example, but you could use any one of these, these layer one uh, smart application protocols that are out there compared to what you're able to do on liquid with no uh, innate token. That's part of the protocol. Uh, not really. I mean, it's, uh, no, I think most of it is a sales pitch for the token, right? Yeah. So it's, you know, follow the incentives. Um, and I think, you know, the challenge is, as we were just discussing with with the, you know, the non-security world, the, the ICO pre-mined altcoin world, that it seems empirically like the hyper-incentivization derails the projects from, you know, achieving their outcome or puts too much of their energy into marketing or less into innovation or something like that. So, you know, as so I think it's not really necessary, you know, yes, the, um, the, uh, sort of Bitcoin layer twos are incremental, right? So, you know, there, there are trade-offs. So, I mean, lightning, for example, makes some different security trade-offs. Liquid makes a different security trade-off, but you know, the, uh, Ultimately, the um, sort of peer-to-peer -peer transferability guarantees are much better than people assume with Liquid because you know, most of the assets are native to the chain. And what, what you're looking for the block signers to do is just to provide a tiebreaker for which, which block is final. So you know, the, the actual the counterintuitive thing is People got hung up about this on Bitcoin already, right? That that they assumed that miners were controlling things. Actually, miners had very little control. You know, they just order blocks, get rewarded for the work, and you know, the people running the full nodes are actually in control. It turns out, and you know, the the uh, uh, the market basically fixed. I think I think the outcome of the uh, block size discussion was that the free market won and you know, got what it wanted. And so I think, you know, this counterintuitive as it is, a similar thing applies to a federated model, which is, you know, other than the fees, which are in Bitcoin, um, the actual assets on it are native to it. So they can't be, you know, taken out of the network. And if the block signers, it's kind of analogous to the miners getting into this UASF situation, if the block signers on the liquid network were to do something that was undesirable to the asset holders, they could fire them. Basically, they could take the last 
snapshot of the chain. And you can run a full node, look at the chain, and elect some new block signers. I think uh, most tokens like are not needed. Um, you can build on top of Bitcoin without making uh, an altcoin. Yeah, and, and and when you say most, you're implying that there that there are times to do tokens as far as fundraising, similar to what you do in an equity kind of deal, correct? Yeah, and that's yeah. a security. And that's a security. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Um, was there anything that we didn't cover? that through your interview process after this big announcement that you guys would like to clarify or highlight that you think is an important highlight? I don't know. We've covered a We've covered a broad. lot here. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, do you have anything yeah. else? Yeah, that was pretty efficient. I mean, I think uh, one of the kind of technical financial detail that might interest the uh, some of your audience, a subset of them, is that the, the Bitcoin upside that we've been describing is, is basically uh, an option, a Bitcoin option, right? An option is the right, the call option is the right to the upside above a price at a duration. So these are European call options because you get the right at the end of the term. And there are option valuation models, like the Black-Scholes model. So you can apply a Black-Scholes model to it and see the, the expected value on the Black-Scholes model is about 2%. So if you add the 2% to the coupon, you end up at the kind of conventional bond rate, 8.5%, which is kind of the norm that El Salvador has been issuing. So now the, the Black-Scholes model, I think it's not really great for Bitcoin because it doesn't, it doesn't look at past price changes. It's more about volatility. But in any case, it's just another data point that, you know, somebody without much of a Bitcoin view could could run some conventional modeling tools on the two components in the bond and see that the combined coupon is in, in norm. I think it's an important note as well. And we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, Adam. Uh, most of this $8.2 billion worth of sovereign debt that El Salvador has was issued at the 7.1 to about 9.5% uh, coupon yield um, at the time of issuance. Because it's trading at a discount, because those bonds in the aftermarkets have traded at a discount to the face value of those bonds, their, their effective yield, the yield that they're going for today is a higher yield uh, to 12 to 13%. When I know some of the people in the Twitter comments were saying, you know, what's the big delta? Why am I seeing these yields at 12 or 13% today? And you guys are doing a, an issuance at 6.5% before the, the special coupon, the, the special Bitcoin coupon. And I think it's important that they understand that those issuance are trading at a discount and it's an effective yield that's up that high. And it's it's actually in more more in keeping with the initial rate of 7 to 9% um, that a lot right. of the, the debt had been put on the market. So I think that's an important consideration as well. Yeah, and I mean that um, you know the the discount um, and, and basically the bond calculation is that if it's trading at a discount, it pushes the implied interest rate up, right? Yes. So in, in in any case, the that is reflective of the credit ratings being uh, reduced. Uh, it seems like partly in reaction in reaction to the um, Bitcoin law. Bit, Bitcoin 
uh, legal tender law. So some of the ratings agencies kind of very establishment, Bitcoin is risk to them. Um, so that's a curious side effect and, and partly due to, you know, normal economic factors, right? COVID, levels of debt, ability to service debt, I presume, uh, not being a specialist in El Salvador economics or uh, the ratings of these things. But in any case, I think an interesting point is the Bitcoin component may actually uh, reduce the default risk because it's a second track to see repayment, which is, you know, on a first track, you're relying on the conventional, the government will typically um, do revolving, you know, more bonds to refinance previous bonds um, from the country's coffers and tax revenue and stuff like that to, to repay the coupon on the principal. But here you've got the second tranche, which is the Bitcoin component. And in many of these, you know, variously conservative models, the Bitcoin component alone could repay the principal and leave much left over, in, including the, the amount, you know, the half of it, the 500 million that's invested in infrastructure or later in the Bitcoin city. So I think it's a pretty interesting uh, leverage bet on the future. You know, if, if it turns out that Bitcoin is digital gold in the same way that, you know, previous centuries saw black gold and oil um, and the petrodollar start to have a big influence in the world, they could find themselves as the, you know, the new oil wealthy country of the world, right? But in a, in a digital realm. Yeah, you just have to have a little bit of foresight and see where things are going. But um, I, I guess the, the other topic is risk of default, right? There is risk with bonds, like there is always a risk of default. But like Adam is saying, that risk is significantly reduced by having that Bitcoin component and that's by design. So, you know, you do 10 of these bonds, stagger them out a little bit, well, El Salvador is accumulating their treasury of Bitcoin, and that should allow them to repay all bonds and you know, pay the principal on these bonds too. But there's a lot of interesting things we can do. I've been kicking around this idea of maybe tokenizing some of their existing bonds. So like I said, one of their bonds is traded on the Luxembourg Stock Exchange. We could wrap that, tokenize that, and then you know, bring liquidity to that bond to crypto traders and then issue another bond to buy back the old bonds. And that new bond would also be a Bitcoin backed bond with a 50% Bitcoin component to it. So maybe that one bond will fix all of their old bonds. Sounds like the creativity is the limitation here. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, not that not <laughs> you guys have the creative limit, but I'm just saying like this could get really interesting in the coming couple of years, especially if this performs similar to like MicroStrategy's uh, convertible note that they were issuing. And I suspect it will. Um, and I'm sure you guys are having, uh, I don't know, but I'm assuming you guys have had tremendous success with your block, Blockstream mining note to date uh, with it being the, the subscription rate on that, I would imagine was, was very high. And, um, you know, yeah. very exciting time. Very, very exciting time. It, it takes time for new ideas to be digested by the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So like the BMN, when we first launched it, I think it, it took us like two weeks to sell out, right, Adam? Like two yeah, weeks. one took a while. Yeah. yeah was, and then it was previous prior to operation two. So we started selling it in March this year and the mining started in July. So yeah, I think people felt more uncertainty at that point. Well, I think they didn't understand it. And right now, every trench we're selling sells out in minutes. 
you know, and I think we've sold 40 million now, and there's just a massive amount of demand for it. But once the market digests the Bitcoin bonds and they understand the impact and the potential and the potential also for El Salvador, I think uh, it'll take off. Like uh, we just need to launch them and get them out the door and sell them out, which I don't think is going to be an issue. And then it's really going to take off. Uh, more nation states are going to be doing these bonds or private companies too. It's just a new model. My last question for you guys, is there a supply chain impact for hardware, for mining hardware specifically? Uh, moving forward, do you see that inhibiting uh, more deals like this if you can't get your hand on mining rigs? I mean, there are supply chain issues in general at the moment for, for ASICs. You've seen that with, you know, in the news about uh, automotive, like um, even, even that, which is different process that's older process equipment um so yeah i mean i think what what tends to happen there is mining profitability is extended normally the market would be producing more miners than it currently is uh, to sort of catch up with the commodity economics but because of the shortage that's that's harder and this is also one of the reasons that blockstream acquired spondulous tech in our uh recent b round to build our own miners to, uh, you know, I mean, it was everybody's still supply chain constrained, but what happens in a, in a supply chain constrained world is the manufacturers charge a premium and, you know, the prices are up three or four times, maybe more since last year. And so, you know, if you are in the business of, uh, you know, providing mining, operating mining, prop mining, a company or, or in a, in a uh, sovereign level, you're subject to those um, manufacturing premiums, which absorb some of the mining profitability, right? So if you could, if you can manufacture it yourself at cost plus, you're in a better position to to keep that part of the upside. But I, I think El Salvador, they're going to do a lot more with the bonds. Like the first bond will be for infrastructure, energy infrastructure and mining, the subsequent ones for Bitcoin City. But you know, there's a lot to do when you're building out and building infrastructure for a nation state, right? There's a, a number of things you could do with that money, and it doesn't all have to go towards mining, which is okay. Gentlemen, uh, give people a handoff where they can uh, learn more about you. We'll obviously have your Twitter handles in the uh, show notes. Is there anything else that you guys want to uh, hand off? Yeah, you can learn more about Blockstream at blockstream.com. And on Twitter, it's at Blockstream. We're on all social platforms, just Blockstream. Yeah, and we've uh, also recently started a, a podcast hosted by Jesse Knutson, who's uh, coincidentally one of the people working on the modeling for this bond. And uh, so he, we are, you know, covering some of these topics there. It's it's you know, Blockstreamers talking to Blockstreamers about Blockstream products, not not a conventional podcast. So it's just a way for us to explain. We do a lot of interesting things and we need to explain more of it and you know, make it more accessible to people. So that's the thought process there. Awesome. We're opening up to more guests too. I think for one of the subsequent ones, we've got more, it's from Spectre. So people right. building on Blockstream tech also are welcome to come on. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So we'll have a link to uh, the podcast there as well. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for your time. This was amazing. I was learning so much. I just appreciate every time you guys make time to come on the show. Thank you, Preston. It's always a pleasure. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. 
just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.